0: we have moved away from the model that broadcasting was designed to work on. When radio was first regulated in the 1920s, the design was a series of regional stations focused on local content. And when television comes along later on, the design of the system is a locally based system. That system was the basis for our media structure for better than 70 years. And then in 1996, we took a different approach. Of course, the poster child for this model became Clear Channel Communications, which was a blob that absorbed every little mom and pop radio station they could buy. So we have a working model of what happens when you consolidate stations. And we look at Clear Channel today, iHeartMedia today, and they're not doing too hot. People rejected it, and they rejected it out of hand because their media lost a lot of its local character.
1: Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel.
2: Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, and we're joined on the line today by our friend Christopher Terry. Hi, guys. Christopher Terry is a professor of media law and ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism. At the University of Minnesota. And uh, boy, the
1: FCC has been super busy (laughs) the last (laughs) month or so. We are just going to jump right in, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I mean, because we we, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about the fact that Chairman Pai, the uh, chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees broadcast stations, oversees their licensure, oversees their ownership, as well as aspects of telecommunications, aspects of of the internet. Chairman The business of media. The business of media. Chairman Pai uh, has put out a proposal to radically rework media ownership. And that really affects what we get on the radio what we get via television and has all these subsidiary effects on things like internet news cable news etc. Yeah. And Professor Terry is our go-to man to help us untangle this and he has I would argue given more time and thinking to the issue in the last uh more than a decade going into 20 years than than almost anyone else especially following specifically and closely what the is doing because this is not just falling out of the sky. This didn't just happen out of nowhere. There is a a long history of, of legislation, a long history of FCC policy and court challenges
2: and court rulings that inform this. And so, we really want Chris to help us yeah. understand that there, historical. There's perspective. a there is a media landscape. There is an ecosystem that functions with rules, and the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, has the power to to push that landscape in different directions, and has exercised that power over the generations to change what we have. Your radio sounds the way it does because other FCCs have done things. I mean, Congress does things too. Yeah, because Congress made rules in 1996 in particular, and the FCC has followed
1: them up in particular So here
2: we are with Donald Trump's FCC. It's been, uh, oh, has it been 10 months of Donald Trump's FCC, just about, and uh, Ajit Pai is is his man in the chair, who gets to to set the course for the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, we've covered his business before. We've talked about his projects, but uh, what's what's the newest and latest?
1: So, so Chris, the framing you've often used in talking to us about the FCC's approach to regulating the ownership of of media is a legacy of failure. And there's a certain irony to that right now that I, I would like you to, <laughs> to explain to us, please.
0: Well, the the idea of the legacy of failure is that the commission has made a series of bad policy choices. But for the first time, the commission is willing to at least tacitly admit to those bad choices. But also for the first time, the commission is using the outcomes of those bad policy choices to justify the next round of media consolidation and as someone who's watched this for a long time this is actually a fairly new development for the Commission we're we're going to say everything is wrong we're not going to expressly admit that everything is wrong because of us but we admit that everything is wrong but that means that we need to change things again and that's really where the vote in November is going to start and the premise on what much of it is going to rely on.
2: So what's on the table when you say media consolidation is that uh, the few owners of what we have in radio, television, newspapers, the media, uh, are going to get even fewer yet again.
0: Well, that's certainly the logical outcome to take away from the rule changes that the commission is going to make. And the list is quite long. There is a proposal to eliminate the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule first passed in 1975, that uh, prevents a company from owning a newspaper and uh, broadcast station in the same market. They're going to eliminate the radio-television cross-ownership rule. They believe that it is no longer necessary. They're going to revise the local television rule, uh, which is a a significant change that deserves some discussion. In two ways, they're going to eliminate the eight voices test, which guaranteed that there would be eight separate competitors in a market, and eliminate the top four prohibition, which kept anyone from owning two of the top four performing stations in a market. They're not making any changes to the local radio ownership rule, uh, but they're getting rid of a rule that Uh, requires attribution for joint service agreements. That's where a station is run by one company, but owned by another. And uh, they're going to try and pass the buck on coming up with a viable minority ownership program with something they're now calling an incubator program, but smells a lot like the program that's been rejected by the court, not once, but twice.
2: Wow. Well, I hope that we can break down all of the jargon. I think I understand everything after... uh these many episodes of radio survivor i'm i've you've helped educate me on these terms but i hope during this hour we'll be able to define some of the things you just spoke on uh, but but it would take it's going to take the hour so i'm going to pass it to paul for the for, for the question
1: well let's set this up when you when we're looking at these rules um which dictate how many outlets A particular company can own, specifically, how many outlets in a given market. Uh, The idea here is that it's it's aimed towards uh, increasing diversity or preserving diversity of voices. That there's not a
2: monopoly. And these are rules that have been on the books uh, defining our landscape for generations. Right. Um, And over time, the
1: FCC has made these efforts to sort of loosen them, and people have challenged this in court. There saying, used to be more
2: diversity and now there's less diversity.
1: That, that in fact one it may not that doesn't work or two that that the efforts aren't even justified. And so uh what's here in front of us is actually a, a still in effect court ruling, an appeals court ruling. That's correct, Chris. That 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 needs to be taken into account when when looking at these proposals from the FCC.
0: Well, that's a complicated story. Uh, The rules that are currently under review other than the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule which was passed in 1975, are all legacies of the 1996 Telecommunications Mm -hmm. Act in one way or another. As we've talked about, but for people who haven't heard us talk about it before, the FCC is required to review the rules it has on the books every couple of years. First, it was two years later, four. And between 1996 and 2003, the commission really didn't take any other actions other than to implement the rules dictated to them by Congress. But then in 2003, it had enough evidence internally to suggest that its approach was not working very well. So it tried to change the rules with a new measurement system called the diversity index.
2: Christopher, when you say not working very well, what do you mean?
0: It wasn't achieving the stated outcomes. Advertising pricing was going up. Content diversity was going down, local news production was being reduced by consolidation. So the commission tried to change the rules a little bit. And to make a long story short, a group of petitioners uh, filed against the FCC's decision made in June of 2003 through a multi-panel district litigation system, the court The case ends up in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals rather than the DC Circuit Court of Appeals where such things are usually adjudicated. Third Circuit Court of Appeals in a case that was headed up by the Prometheus Radio Project but had about 32 separate petitioners all essentially on the same side. Dictated that the FCC had not found evidence uh, or did not portray evidence that suggested that the policy as it was implemented was working And that there was no evidence that this new policy, the FCC was trying to push the diversity index, actually achieved its goals. And the court remanded that decision to the FCC and said, come back. Several years will pass. And in 2008, under Chairman Kevin Martin, the commission tries again to change the media ownership rules, taking a really narrow approach. And that decision the FCC's decision there was also driven over to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals under the previous remand. It was combined with a separate proceeding dealing with ownership of broadcast stations by women and minorities. And that decision, which is Prometheus 2, the Third Circuit took an even grimmer point of view of what the FCC had done and essentially said, don't come back here until you can... Sh- show your work show that it works provide us empirical evidence that suggests that these decisions are, are rational and remanded a very large section of the order back to the fcc then in april of last year 2016 the fcc had been dragging its feet on this for so long that both sides both people who are against additional deregulation and people who people from the industry who vehemently disagree with these people and suggest that they want more deregulation of ownership, they get together to drag the FCC into court to force them to make a decision because the FCC had just literally let this languish for a period of five years. After the decision languished for five years, the deregulatory petitioners and the regulatory petitioners brought the FCC back into court, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in April of last year ordered the FCC to make a decision one way or the other. In August of 2016, the FCC released an order that essentially did nothing. And to answer your original question, yes, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals still has an unanswered remand in this, but as part of what the FCC is going to try and do in November of 2016 is they're holding that decision in abeyance until the court has a chance to rule on what they did in 2016, as well as what is going to happen in November of
1: 2017. So, so if I can, if I can kind of sort of summarize this, yeah, right? Twisted, twisted tale. Yeah. So, what the, the rules which the court reviewed were came from the George W. Bush era FCC. So this was a Republican-dominated FCC. And these new rules were around uh, this diversity index, which was their way of trying to compute and prove that uh, a given market, a media market, say Chicago or Milwaukee, was sufficiently diverse, right? Is, is that correct?
0: Yeah, It. It functioned around a six voices test. It believed that if there were six different voices or six different owners or six different operators of media in a market, they could constitute the market as diverse. Sounds
1: it, sounds reasonable. But, but the fact is, is that uh, the diversity test it looked outside of broadcast, but included broadcast. Isn't that correct?
0: That's correct. And in fact, it even counted internet sites owned by broadcasters as separate voices under the system right, no so, so if
1: you're if you, if you're, you are like channel 7 on the tv dial and then you also had channel7.com it would count those as two voices even if the content was largely uh, duplicative yes so and this is it was this diversity index which they were which the fcc was using to further deregulate Uh, ownership and allow more consolidation and which the court rejected and said no sorry one this doesn't really work and two you haven't justified why we should count uh these co-owned voices as separate voices amongst many other issues but it's sort of like a core element that people can i think kind of hang their their understanding on and and the fcc went back to the woodshed and came back in 2008 Still at that time, uh, a George W. Bush uh, FCC, a Republican F- FCC under Kevin Martin, um, and the court sent it back. And and then the FCC didn't do its homework, <laughs> basically no. has not tried to to readdress uh, this diversity index, rewrite it or, or reconstitute it and hasn't made any changes while everyone still acknowledges that there's been a lot of consolidation of radio and television. And then as a result, there's fewer local voices, there's less diversity of voices. Um, and the broadcasters claim that, well, you know what, uh will achieve these uh Sort of economies of scale. Right. If
2: you let us, if you let us consolidate more, and then we'll be able to invest that I, back in. Isn't I, that
1: about? about well, what I want to are? add
2: one more negative impact to the soup, which is that uh, there are less reporters on less beats in less newsrooms in every city in the country during this time period as well.
0: Correct. I mean, the economy of scale is still the central argument here, right? the The premise is pretty simple. Take two operations, you combine them into one operation. There's some inherent cost savings across operating two stations as essentially one. And the argument has always been that if we allow broadcasters to do this, they can make use of this basic economic theory and they'll reinvest some, the used the argument used to be all of that savings back into programming, which would then benefit the public interest. There's two problems with that theory. One, it's never actually happened. And two, the FCC never made sure that it happened. In fact, they've gone out of their way to make sure they didn't verify whether or not it has happened, but they continue to rely on it in the order they're going to vote on November 16th as a justification. And as we approach the media ownership apocalypse of the Sinclair television merger, um, economy of scale is still being cited as the fundamental premise for why it is in the public interest to merge these stations.
2: We're on the line with Christopher Terry. We're talking about the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and we are doing our best here on Radio Survivor to shine a light on this story today, which is a part of a trend a long trend uh, and we're doing it, it's complicated. Uh, I think that's an important part to get to at some point that like, it's never in the news. It happens behind the scenes every year. And we're, we're heading towards greater and greater uh, media consolidation without coverage. Or when it's in the news, because uh, now it, it's
1: been in the news. Now that the FCC yeah. uh, has released a proposal for, for yeah. its regulatory when you say it's review. Been in the news, I don't, I don't know who's seen it. I well, don't know who's read it. Well, I mean, it's in. I mean, it is in the New York Times. It is in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, somewhere on yeah, the business no, no, page. It really is yeah. on the third. The, yeah, yeah. It, re, no, it really is. It really is in the news. Um, and I mean, obviously, it gets pushed down by other bigger events, but it is really in the news. <laughs> at least people who are looking for it can find it. Um, but but the thing that's been missing, as Christopher has pointed out, is this historical context that gets looked at sort of sui generis, like like this sort of just dropped out of the sky, like, you know, sure. And the narrative is that we have, uh, you know, a Republican free marketeer, FCC chair, who of course he wants to relax ownership rules. Sure, we have a troubled media. Uh, uh,
2: the, the corporations Supposedly are not doing so media. well
1: and they need help supposedly yes. troubled uh media how did this sector happen that, that, that needs- they're not
2: that they can't afford
1: all the jobs that they
2: once could afford
1: right you know so that that's the narrative without looking at the fact
2: that well this is this is now going on for 21 years a generation of 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 change in a, in one direction so so Chris
1: um you know so with that as a background right this, this fact that that the FCC has made these sort of furtive efforts to, uh, to deregulate a little bit with with the idea with the, with the argument that that would make things better, but with a court that says you know, provide no proof that it 'll make things better. We now go in to new proposals from uh, principally you know, authored by uh, Chairman Ajit Pai. And a lot of this uh, focuses on on local market television, right? So this is something which you mentioned right up at the top there, that he wants to deregulate the local television role. So let, let's dig into that a little bit, if you will. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure. The uh, local television rule is part and parcel of how television ownership is regulated. There's actually two systems that the FCC has employed since 96. One is the national television ownership rule, which is based on a percentage of the national audience. You can own as many stations as you can own, one per market, to the idea that you achieve a certain percentage of the national audience. That percentage for a long time was 35%. So it works like this, New York has 7% of the entire television households in the United States. If you own a station in New York, it counts for 7% towards that 35% total. The problem of course, is that when you get down into the smaller markets, places like Glendive, Montana, for example, you're talking about fractions of a percentage of a percent, which means that you can own stations in the big markets and then you kind of fill in with stations in the smaller places. But that's the national. The local ownership rule worked in two ways. It allowed consolidation if there were eight independent television voices. That's the eight voices test. But also it had a prohibition kept you from owning two of the top four stations, typically the ABC, NBC, CBS and NBC and affiliates. And,
1: and that yeah, top right. station is judged by ratings
0: by ratings. Yes. Yeah. Um. Sometimes they'll use a metric of advertising sales that's been tried in the past, but hasn't really gained traction. The primary method is the traditional one using ratings. And the FCC uses a lot of industry standards to apply market structure, right? It uses Nielsen, which absorbed Arbitron, which did radio ratings for definitions for what constitutes a radio market these days. So it's it's not uncommon, right? I mean, what they're talking about doing, but what the... The change to the rule is that the prohibition on the top two station ownership would go away and the eight voices test would be removed. And the top two stations would be judged. So, if you were going to own the ABC and NBC affiliate to market, that would be judged on a case by case basis, which in FCC term means waiver. And what that, why they're doing this now is important. They're trying to set the stage to smooth over the rough spots in the merger between Sinclair Television and Tribune Media as Sinclair tries to buy Tribune's stations. Um, They had come up with a novel idea on how to pass the television national ownership rule by declaring all stations that are digital to essentially be subject to a UHF discount, meaning that they now count for half of their given percentage. So they got around that, but they to get this deal to go through, there are markets where Sinclair will actually own two as many as three of the top four stations. And they're going to remove this rule ahead of that in what appears to only be justified on the idea that it'll make the transition to Sinclair's Tribune merger go smoother.
1: Well, so let me wrap my head around this. So what basically is happening is the FCC is saying, you know what, Uh, we don't really need to enforce a diversity of voices. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me by getting rid of of this rule that requires the top four stations in the market not to be co-owned Right. That they should be independently owned by different owners by getting rid of that and then getting rid of this uh, eight voices rule. I mean, are they replacing it with anything aside from the top two? Is, Is anything coming in to replace or is that it?
0: No, that's it. It's all this is a this move by the commission is entirely deregulatory in nature. It is only they're not adding any rules here. They're only repealing rules that they're arguing are no longer in the public interest. In some cases they say that the rule is outdated. In the case in newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule, they say the media marketplace is different now than it was in 1975. Uh, In the case of the local television rule or the radio cross ownership rule, they say those rules are no longer necessary to promote viewpoint diversity. But here's the gas on that. They're saying that in part because of the consolidation that they've already allowed to occur. They're now arguing, the commission is now arguing, that because radio is no longer a significant contributor to local news and viewpoint diversity, wow. that they don't need to worry about that anymore. That really what they need <laughs> to do is free up economic structures that will fix the problem. Wow! And that is an incredibly novel argument by the commission. I, I give them credit for... The chutzpah, if you will, to uh, <laughs> to take that yeah. approach. I'll,
2: I'll because, say it's chutzpah, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's my Minnesota accent. Um, the uh, the whole the whole of it, though, is that they're sort of tacitly admitting that everything that they've done so far reduced viewpoint diversity, but it's reduced it in such a way that it no longer needs to be part of the equation. And since there's so few
2: newsrooms in any radio station at all, who cares if there's less newsrooms?
0: Right. That's not, they didn't say it quite that explicitly, (laughs) but that's their central argument at this point. Yeah, we kind of screwed it up, but uh, you know what? That's going to open up some new doors for us. So we're just going to roll with that. And that's, uh, I, I will admit, I didn't see that one coming. As somebody who's studied this for a long time, has paid a great deal of attention to it, was affected by it professionally when I was in radio and watched it consolidate around me. Uh, I didn't ever think we'd get to the point where they just admit that they screwed it up so bad that the only way to, to fix it at this point was to essentially double down and try and fix it more by clapping louder and hoping that it'll work. So this, so time.
1: this is sort of like if you had a flood in your basement, instead of turning on a sump pump, you should turn on more faucets. We no- got right. a swimming pool now. <laughs> it turned, yep. Right. It turned it into a swimming pool.
0: <laughs> um, I was, I was, I was trying to think so I was reading this again last night before this interview and uh, I was trying to come up with the proper metaphor and I came up with something that was involving lemonade and something that was involving the something that is the same color as lemonade <laughs> yeah and that was about the best I could come up with so
1: so and 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 they really provide no additional justification so they're not trying to lean when back you, say on they, this, you mean the federal the Communications FCC Commission. yes the Federal Communications Commission uh, provide no they're not leaning back on this diversity index which is the previous methodology they used to, to push uh, greater consolidation. They're basically saying look uh, pretty much the only tool we have in our bag now the only tool that's left is to try and achieve some econ- economy of scale and uh and so if that means that uh you know the channel two and five in this market now are have the same ownership then they can buy newsrooms well that's the only way they're going to be able to do it and and still provide news and 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 that'll be enough that, that'll be enough is that basically it i mean i'm it, it's one of these things that like it's so kind of uh uh, bald, or, right. Chutzpah, as you say, uh, that it's almost tough to, to believe <laughs> from some, and I've been watching the FCC nearly as long as you have, although not as closely. And, and very rarely have I seen this level of chutzpah uh, on their behalf.
0: Well, it's, uh, what's interesting about it is that the FCC used economy of scale to justify mergers at the beginning of this sequence, right? So between 96 and 2004 ish, the primary mechanism that the FCC would use to justify a merger when it would rule on it would be economy of scale, and I mean economy of scale was used to justify mergers on just the thinnest of pretexts. There was a station in Oregon that was allowed to combine with its competitor over a couple hundred dollars in potential savings in office supplies a month at one point. You know, there, it's it's been used, but what happened was is that the FCC actually got to a point in about two thousand five where they realized that it was getting really hard to justify these mergers solely on economy of scale. And they started using it as sort of a secondary approach. And they started looking at how advertising markets would be afterwards. And then when they sort of ran the table on that and couldn't justify those mergers anymore on that principle, they essentially went back to what Congress had directed them to do in the 1996 Telecommunications Act and said, we're just going to follow these rules and call it even. And will approve mergers that would fit under the existing structure because they were sort of tied down by the Prometheus decision at that point. But it's interesting here as they're trying to resolve this issue, and I truly believe they're trying to put this to bed for good, is that they're really trying to return to sort of the base idea that economy of scale will actually create a better environment for news and content production. And that is a really interesting approach because there is absolutely zero evidence that this has actually occurred at any point in the last 21 years. There is not one shred of evidence at the commission. And in fact, there's evidence that says this doesn't work, that the commission at one point didn't want anybody to know about and actually had lost for a while. That uh, kind of snuck back out when Kevin Martin, the a previous FCC commissioner, was up for hearings in the, in the Senate. So it's interesting that they're returning to this, but they're returning to it on the principle that we've screwed it up so badly now that it's really the only justification that we can have for these mergers.
1: And you are listening to Radio Survivor. We are talking with Professor Christopher Terry. He's a professor of media law and ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism at the University of Minnesota. My name is Paul rees and with me is Eric Klein. And we are talking about the Federal Communications Commission's. That's a that's a tough mouthful. Too many S's there at the end. We call uh, it the FCC these the days. The FCC's proposal uh, just released to further loosen. Media ownership rules, specifically with regard to television, but also with regard to the cross ownership of television stations and newspapers, radio stations and TV, Um, and kind of getting really analyzing it and analyzing it uh, within the history of these moves over the last uh, 21 years, the last generation if you will. And of course if you want to learn more about these things that we're talking about, please go to our website radiosurvivor.com. If you go to radiosurvivor.com/podcast, you can find the show notes to this particular episode that gives you more details and links to learn more. Just look for episode number 115. If you have any comments about the show, please send them to us podcast at Radiosurvivor.com. Also, I, I need to let you know that we are a reader and listener supported enterprise. If you'd like to learn more about how to help keep this going,
2: go to Radiosurvivor.com/slash support. It's Eric Klein, and my role here on Radio Survivor is to say to oversimplify things and then to have them walked back <laughs> by the experts we invite on. So here we go. We used to have a media landscape, let's say in the 1970s, where um there was a, a relatively compared to what we have in 2017 a huge number of uh small mom and pop media companies throughout the entire uh, united states of america every city and town had a uh, uh a a small business as it were that employed any number of media professionals that covered that community either uh, covered it by playing records, covered it by sending reporters to City Hall, uh, radio, television, or print, and uh, that landscape functioned under a set of rules uh, that the FCC implemented. And now, lo, low, these many years later, those rules have been loosened, have been done away with, have been changed, have been uh, perverted, perhaps, and now there's a whole lot less people working in the media, and a whole lot more, uh, fewer owners at the top. Making what less money? Are they doing so much worse? Or are they doing better? Does that does that matter? I think one of the reasons we care about this is because people who who, who enjoy uh, reading the newspaper or listening to the radio or even watching their television news are not getting the same quality of information they used to get. Or there's just less information than there used to be.
0: Chris,
1: can you fill that in?
0: Well, he's absolutely right about that. I, he did oversimplify it and now we have to walk it back. But hey. um, the uh, <laughs> I mean, what's, what's really changed is that we have moved away from the model that broadcasting was designed to work on. When radio was first regulated in the 1920s, the design was a series of regional stations focused on local content. And when television comes along later on, and then FM radio comes on board with television during the Six Report and Order in 1954, the design of the system is a locally based system. Now, to get content, they'll, the local stations will affiliate with groups of other stations and national networks to get some of their content. But the basic design of the system was to be a series of independently operated local stations that focused on providing content to local citizens. That system was the basis for our media structure for better than 70 years. And then in 1996, we took a different approach. The argument, which followed uh, a period of deregulation at the commission starting in the 80s under Chairman Mark Fowler, Reagan's appointee to the uh, FCC, essentially argued that we were doing it wrong, that what we needed to do was focus on providing economic resources to broadcasters. And the best way to do that was to allow them to consolidate their operations. And of course, the poster child for this model became Clear Channel Communications, which was a blob that absorbed every little mom and pop radio station that could buy and a bunch of its other competitors that were out there in the market.
2: It did very well for a a number of years. It grew and grew and grew.
0: Right. And... Importantly, Clear Channel gets a lot of credit for dominating radio in the late 90s and early 2000s. Part of that story is the number of stations they own. They own about one out of every 10 commercial radio stations in the United States. But they were also providing programming to about 5,000 stations on a daily basis through their syndication arm. And so we have a working model of what happens when you consolidate stations and you rely on the economy of scale, and you move from a local production system to a national production model. And we look at Clear Channel today, iHeartMedia today, and they're not doing too hot, right? It People rejected it, and they rejected it out of hand because their media lost a lot of its local character.
2: You mean people right? like the audience rejected it? it people stopped listening?
0: Yeah. Consumers stopped using it and started looking for alternative options um because the things that had made their media distinct the radio station that they listened to their favorite music station their favorite news station the television news that they had the character of those things was homogenized across markets so the radio's playlist you got in cleveland was the same one you got in milwaukee but it went further than that in that as they moved towards this sort of national top-down production system Even things like the news were being produced out of market and tried to be repackaged locally. And for the listeners that don't know, I worked for Clear Channel in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for many years. And at one point, Clear Channel was producing news for the six Milwaukee radio stations in Cleveland, Ohio, which was hilarious. Listening to people from Cleveland try to pronounce the Indian names and the sort of nasal approach to Wisconsin speaking that we had. I mean it was just silly. And so human
2: we, human reporters were sitting in Ohio uh reading the news that was being broadcast in in Milwaukee.
0: Yeah, they were recording the news, sending it to us on the internet and then we were putting it in. And in a couple of cases, the news was old by the time it actually aired. And so everybody
2: know? everybody listening to it in Wisconsin knew that it was trash.
0: Right. And it was the same with music, right? There'd be one, one person would host a show and they would digitally voice track that show and that would be the same playlist in Milwaukee as Cleveland, as Cincinnati and anywhere else that Clear Channel had stations. And a lot of the local character, right? The, the guy, the, your hometown DJ, the guy that went out and did events and went to concerts and met people and everything. He wasn't a person, he was just a voice now and he could have been anywhere. And that character that got lost trickled not down just from the music, but into the news business. And that was part of the significant changes that forced a lot of consumers to react. But the story is bigger than that. Local news lost out in other ways, too. And with the FCC's concurrent removal of the uh, local studio role, which you talked with Professor Anderson about last week we're starting to see something we've also seen happen, that these local operations are just sort of automatons of a larger puppet operation. And that's had significant consequences. In 2002, in Minot, North Dakota, um, the E-E-P-A- or EBS was not uh, triggered during a hazardous so the, train, the
1: alert, the emergency alert system, right. Right. Which people was, know from the, the tones that that tell you right. that there's a storm coming or something else.
0: Right. In, in Minot in 2002, there was a train accident, train derailment and some toxic chemicals were released. And there was no one at any of the six Minot commercial radio stations because they were all owned by clear channel, empty desks. There was, it was being run by automation and, uh, you know, the emergency alert was not triggered and there were some consequences for that. And it was funny as the FCC sort of began talking about what it's going to do in November, there were some people suggesting that maybe we call these new rules, the Minot rules Mm. in, in honor of what had happened in 2002. So these things are, these are significant things and they've changed how media is produced. They've changed how media is distributed and they've certainly had a significant effect on the content during the time that these changes have been implemented.
1: And and like another victim, I think of these various ownership proceedings as loosening of rules as consolidation has been minority representation and minority ownership of media outlets. And this is something which, I mean, which the FCC also acknowledges at this point, isn't that correct?
0: Well, there's no denying the evidence on this. Um, Minor- women and minority owners, women considered a minority owner under the generic minority ownership scheme, um, own a very insignificant portion of the media operations in the state. I saw some figures today they are lower than the ones I had been using in my own research, but uh, women own 67 broadcast stations in the United States and African-Americans own 12 at this point. Part of that story is what happened with the consolidation in the late 90s and early 2000s in that all these independent operators, uh, they saw the writing on the wall. It was a seller's market and they sold out. But what ended up happening is women and minority voices were largely eliminated because owners were taken out of the equation that were broadcasting content that targeted them. And... Part of what the FCC is really struggling with, with what's going to happen in November, is to resolve one thing that the Third Circuit absolutely ordered it to do. And that was come up with a new viable policy to promote women and minority owners. The last time the FCC tried this was in 2008. They came up with a program called the Eligible Entity Program which was based on small business provisions with the idea that if there were some tax incentives and some other operational funding things made available, that you'd get some new owners in, and at least a portion of those would be new women and minority owners. It didn't really add up. The Third Circuit, a court of appeals, told the FCC to buck up and stop whining, essentially using that language. And the FCC has, part of the reason it struggled with this is it can't get around how to solve the minority ownership problem and and, the- and it would seem
1: to be an even harder problem to solve while you're, with your other hand, busy uh, loosening the rules even more and providing more incentive and more ability for a company like Sinclair Broadcasting to get even bigger and own even more stations, right? <laughs> it would seem like, on the one hand, that these things would would be in a almost unresolvable tension, uh, trying to both promote more diverse ownership while at the same time uh, stripping away the rules that might promote diversity of ownership. Am I oversimplifying that?
0: No, I think you've said it very clearly. Um, The FCC has to do something about this or the remand from 2011 and extended in 2016 stands. And what they've done here is sort of novel. They've renamed the program and sought to they're seeking comment on a new program, which they're calling an incubator program, but it's really just the SBA program, the eligible entity program that the court has thrown out twice. And, uh, you know, just calling it something else, putting a new layer of paint on it, so to speak. And I don't know how that's gonna go. I, uh, if you read the 2011 decision, The Third Circuit very clearly ordered the FCC to resolve this before it concluded its media ownership proceeding. So a little technical background on this. The order that they're going to vote on in November, on November 16th was the current date. They being the FCC. The FCC is a reconsideration of the order from August 2016. In legal terms, that means that It's an order that concludes the 2010 rule review. But the 2010 rule review can't conclude without some form of legitimate minority ownership program uh, by the FCC. And they've done their best they could do here without actually taking some physical steps to resolve the problem in trying to come up with this new plan. But as you read through the new plan, it looks very much like the old plan. And the old plan has been ruled to not be uh, acceptable twice now. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I, I'm skeptical of what the FCC is trying to do because it looks like most of the decisions are being made to, to sort of smooth over the Sinclair merger that said, but I think it's more likely that this ends up in court than not, uh, even given what the FCC is trying to do, because I think the FCC knows they're going to lose again. But that's a significant point because the Third Circuit Court of Appeals told the FCC in April of 2016 that if the FCC didn't clean up its act here, that it was likely, the Third Circuit was likely to declare the entire basis for media ownership rules to be invalid. And that would be a bonanza that the FCC could never get past itself. But because they've come up with no real New evidence to justify any of these decisions. They're pretty much just saying, "Well, you know, we, we think the marketplace is different now. We don't have any evidence to suggest that, or we have some comments in the docket that suggest we should make these changes." But they don't—they haven't really done anything since 2003 to resolve any of the standing issues. Where's the evidence, right? Why do you? What rules? How do you support these rules? That I think the FCC is hoping for a big loss in court which would conversely actually take away many of the rules the FCC is actually trying to repeal. It's kind of an ironic situation.
1: Huh. So we are talking- They win by losing. We are they,
0: talking- they, Sorry. They win that. substantially by losing, yes.
1: We are talking with Christopher Terry. He's a professor of media law and ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism at the University of of Minnesota. I'm Paul rees Mandel. With me is Eric Klein, and this is Radio Survivor, The Sound of Strong Communities. We are talking about the FCC's proposal to change, loosen media ownership rules. It's a proposal which is coming up for a vote on November 16th at the November public meeting of the Federal Communications Commission. And Professor Terry has been explaining to us how I think essentially the FCC is doubling down. Uh, if this were a poker game, right, they they have a they have a hand where they have uh, they basically have a pair of deuces in their hand and they are betting the pot right now. They've been told by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the appeals court, an appeals court which has authority over the FCC because of a lawsuit filed against their rules, challenging their rules, saying these rules don't add up. And the court has the said lawsuit? so. Yeah, it was the Prometheus Radio Project is the uh, is the lead plaintiff.
2: So a group that that wants uh, a larger, more diverse media Correct. landscape. Yes,
1: yes, a a a, a pro consumer, pro listener, pro media diversity group. They build radio stations, and they they help build radio stations. Um, and and they've been told your your rules don't add up. Your rules don't add up. Go back, go back and fix them. And they haven't. Right over the course now uh, of many many years, the FCC has not fixed these rules. The kid could drive if he was born when they started. <laughs> exactly, and and at this point, instead of sort of doing what the court ordered them to do and fixing these rules, instead they're going out and saying, "No, we're just going to go back. We're just going to turn it all back and come up with with n- fresh fresh rules." That we really can't justify. But what you're saying, Chris, is that to some extent, they're just doubling down with the hope that the court would just toss the whole thing and say, look, you've not done the work and none of your rules make sense. So just we're tossing them all out. What would that leave us with? What would be the circumstances if that were to
0: happen? Well, as I've said, when I've talked about this in the past, we don't know what that would look like in the end, but I can tell you it won't be good. Um, At least the rules as they exist provide some structure to our media system, but the rules have to be supported by the FCC on a periodic basis. And we're into this-
1: They have to to justify them.
0: Yeah, they they have to prove that they're working. And if they can't do that, then they have to repeal the rule. But they also have to have evidence that suggests why they're repealing the rule, and they haven't had evidence either way. And not not old enough to drive a car. Actually, old enough to drink this year. By the way, uh, it's been that long. And since they started this process, now I I am alone. I have not heard anyone else mention this. But as we've talked about, I don't think the coverage of these rules in the media has been very good. It's been sort of absent the historical context. It's
2: very complicated. I, you need like a reporter on the beat for over a decade to just understand anything.
0: Yeah. But I I am seem to be alone in pointing out what the Third Circuit said last year is that if you don't fix this by the next time we see you, you know we're going to have to take some drastic steps. The Third Circuit did not say what those drastic steps were, but as I've talked about in the past, the suggestion of the Third Circuit at the time was that they'll just tear the whole thing down. I don't know what that what that does or what that looks like i mean i can't speak to the third circuit but they've had it with the fcc on this and it goes back to the third circuit uh when this comes under judicial review so i don't i i don't see a good outcome uh as it goes short of the short of the third circuit ordering the fcc to go back and try and fix it again i'm not sure that happens and that means it probably swings fully to the other way
1: now, are, are any of these rules enshrined in law, in legislation? Because it, is it my understanding correct that what would be under the Third Circuit Court's appeal, appeals court purview would be rules which are fixed by the FCC, decided upon and passed by the FCC? They would not be reviewing any rules that are in legislation, that are in law, something passed by Congress and signed by the president in the past. Is this correct?
0: Well, it's both and neither of those things, actually. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I, mean, I, I hate to oversimplify it or overcomplicate it.
2: That's why you're here. The
0: rules the rules themselves are based on rules that are embedded in the 1996 Telecommunication Act. And the FCC did not make those rules. Congress specified those rules. And the FCC has the delegation, Its its power is to... Enforce those rules. And to use a metaphor, you sort of have to think of the FCC as Igor going out for brains for Dr. Frankenstein, right? Dr. Frankenstein tells Igor to go get brains. Igor goes and gets brains. The FCC takes its dictate from Congress. However, what the FCC's charter, their delegation on this was to do is to review the rules as issued by Congress on a periodic basis and get rid of the ones that they weren't serving the public interest. I see. Okay. So the example of this, the easy example of this is the radio television cross ownership rule. This was part of the 1996 telecommunications act is a long-standing ban at the commission enshrined by the telecommunications act. But what the commission is now arguing is, is that rule isn't, serving the public interest anymore again, can you, because can you
1: remind us what that rule is. does it? What does it specify?
0: It limits the ability of a single owner to operate television and radio stations in the same defined market.
1: And they, but they can, I mean, in my experience, so this is a rule I, I don't have a lot of familiarity with. Um, Currently, there are co-owned radio and television stations in markets. So, is it is it constrained that ability, or is it kind of mostly a waiver situation in which when uh, a company wants to co-own radio and television in the same market, they have to go and, and plead to the FCC for the approval?
0: Well, it can be any one of three things. It can be a grandfathered situation, so they didn't break up any of the existing structures when they passed the rule. Uh, it can be a waiver situation in cases of a merger. Or it can be a situation in which a larger merger has taken place and the properties are being held and not yet divested. That also happens in okay, some cases. Okay, meaning they
1: would be selling them off or they would be transferred to other entities. So basically, yeah, but still, the, the principle is the same company should not be owning uh, both radio and television stations in the same
2: market. So quaint.
0: Right. It Well, it constrains the idea. Now, it doesn't eliminate it entirely. Right, got it. It was never designed to do that. Mm-hmm. It was just designed to sort of keep multiple voices operating, multiple owners operating in in a market. And, you know, when the FCC has come up against a situation in the past in which the rule would have prevented a merger, it's used waivers in lots and lots of situations, hundreds of them, where it would grant a case-by-case adjudicative waiver over that situation. So it would say in market X, you know, this radio and this television station are owned by two different entities. They merged in a in a larger national merger, but now they're going to be one company. We can grant a waiver of the radio television cross ownership rule in this case. And often those waivers would include provisions that the station be put up for sale or, in other words, you know, made available for transfer, even if it wasn't transferred right away.
2: And the reason why we care about any of this at all is because audiences... When they're being competed for by different owners, uh, uh, we can assume, uh, generally speaking, they get a better product. We get better news and information. We get more fun music or to different listen to. or
1: different points of view. Yeah. Right. I mean, because in you know, if we t- look at Sinclair in this particular case as an owner of TV stations, one of the things it does is send out this sort of editorial com- content, right. which is a particular political point of view, which which it requires its local affiliates to air as part of their news. Um, and if Sinclair is the only source for local television news or one of only two sources of television news and in a given also market. also
2: owns a radio station.
1: Right. But even if it's just television, right, then there's a significantly limited number of uh, voices which someone is exposed to. But right, in addition, if, if the same company were to own uh, television and radio, then, then you're even restricting that number of voices and, as and well.
2: Once, and once a company has a monopoly in a market, they can take all the audience for granted because they have nowhere else to go.
0: Well, importantly, they can also dominate the advertising market. A company that owns two television stations in a market is going to set the rate for advertising. They're also going to have significant power in terms of retransmission agreements with the local cable franchises. And that's the, you know, for all the FCC's talk about free markets and economics, they're, they've allowed these companies to get so big that. They actually have excessive market power, which has created a sort of a vortex in which you have to allow other consolidation, other companies to consolidate to even have a chance to compete with them. And that's where we're headed. And if these rule repeals go through in November and somehow make it through the Third Circuit Court of Appeals and the Sinclair merger is going to go through on that premise. You're going to create a television broadcaster that has essentially unprecedented access, and it's not about their viewpoint; it's about the market right. powers Sinclair yeah. will wield. Which also, You're,
2: which also, their only. only oh, sorry. Go
0: ahead. Their only option then will be to create other consolidated environments and other consolidated companies to to be able to compete with Sinclair, yeah, and so that's I, you know that's what we saw in the '90s with Clear Channel.
2: So I've been talking about media consumers, the eyeballs uh, in front of the TVs. I forgot all about. Uh, another side of the coin, which is uh, the advertisers, people who want to get their messages out. So political advertising, uh, that landscape will also be impacted by all this.
0: Well, certainly. I mean, you know, you have the two kinds of advertising that kind of comes from the candidates themselves is regulated by federal law and gets all kinds of benefits. But you have all the outside groups buying up massive quantities of advertising now. And Sinclair is going to be able to set just by the size of Sinclair, they're going to be able to set a market rate, essentially everywhere in the in the United States, on what those ads cost, and that that should give people pause. I don't care what Sinclair's right. It, it's sort of this
1: monopoly pricing power, it, yeah. and it it's not unlike uh, a situation where if you could imagine uh, that if if Starbucks decided to in a town open up uh, more coffee shops than any other than there had been ever before, and it's then drop like its it. price, yeah. right, and then decide that now lattes are a dollar where maybe the, the, the sort of prevailing price had been more like $3, it would drive other other coffee shops out of business potentially, or at least would require that it create another Starbucks that can afford to drop lattes down to $1. It's that sort of uh, pricing power, which we see in kind of almost any market where you have these sort of, uh, sort of consolidated sort of ownership. Uh, you give someone the pricing power to, to drop prices or to control prices, because usually what happens is you drop prices, until you get control of the market, then you raise the prices back up. Yeah. That's just generally how these things uh, tend to go down. So so uh, Professor Christopher Terry, you have got just a couple minutes left. So what's happening next is that the FCC is going to vote on these potential rule changes on November 16th. Does the public have any voice in any of this? Is there anything that anyone who is sitting and listening to this and is, is shocked and concerned, is there anything they can do?
0: Well, you can comment to the FCC, but I'm not sure that I think the freight train is rolling on this. And the place where people can do the most is to sort of reach out to their legislators and, you know, try to get some legitimate oversight in Congress over the FCC action here. But there is another thing you can do. You can support groups that are going to be going to battle in court over this, um, as these things develop, uh, it's likely that Prometheus Radio Project will be the lead plaintiff when this case goes again. Um, they're going to be up against a pretty aggressive industry lobby this time who's very excited about these rules. And uh, those organizations are going to be fighting some big bad wolves and probably could use a little support.
1: Well, folks can learn more about that at our website, radiosurvivor.com. Uh, Professor Terry has promised to write up and, and put into more written detail this whole context around this rules change. Again, you can find it at radiosurvivor.com. If you have any comments, please send them to us, podcast at yes. radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota for joining us and helping to explain these rules changes to us and put it in historical context yet again.
0: Oh, you're always welcome. I'm sure our next conversation will be just as morose as this one, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, we're, we're well, about to have a we're about to have the same conversation about net neutrality here very soon. Yes, wow. we'll
1: have to circle back after the November 16th meeting.
2: Yeah, I'm going to put in a plug as well to listeners to listen to past episodes where we spoke with Dr. Christopher Terry because each one is a is a little world unto itself. But we'll
1: compile all of that plus uh, the previous uh, pieces he's written for us on yeah. this legacy. Uh, at the FCC, the show at radiosurvivor dot com slash podcast. I'm Paul rees Mandel. I'm Eric Klein. Thank you so much,
2: Christopher Terry. It's good to have you.
0: Let's talk to you soon.